Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Hey everybody, it's Greg, and it's my absolute pleasure to join Lindsey Graham and Steve Walters for this bonus episode. Now, this is Lindsey Graham, the podcaster, not the senator, but you may still be familiar with him if you're a fan of his other podcasts, American History Tellers and American Scandal. He joins me today as the executive producer of his most recent podcast, 1865. This is, dare I say, a legit, seriously researched, hard-hitting audio drama, and it's historical fiction done right. Steve Walters is a lead writer and co-creator of 1865. It's his and Eric Archilla's brilliant prose that bring this audio drama to life. Lindsay, Steve, thanks for being here. Hey, Greg, thanks for having me. Greg, yeah, it's a pleasure being here. For those who haven't heard of 1865, it tells a very believable tale of the intrigue, backstabbing, and politicking that follows after John Wilkes Booth assassinates Abraham Lincoln at the end of the Civil War. As a storytelling historian myself, I love it. And the fact that we are now entering this same era on HTDS makes it a great time to go deep with these two history podcasting legends. Now, this episode is also being released on 1865's feed, so please note, I'm not going to lead the discussion. Lindsay will. We're going to hash out John Wilkes Booth's heinous actions, what Reconstruction might have looked like had Lincoln lived, and what to make of War Secretary Edwin Stanton's actions under President Johnson. So with no further ado, I'll hand the speaking stick to Lindsay. Here we go. Coming up are the final three episodes of 1865. And uh, they're sort of a, a prequel of sorts to, to the events of the, the, the first 13 episodes. How would you describe it, Steve? Well, whereas the main thrust of the first 13 episodes of 1865 really deals with uh, Lincoln's Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton, and the fight for Reconstruction, uh, the last three episodes, uh, they really are a prequel. They get into sort of the question of, you know, what makes a man a monster? What drove John Wilkes Booth to commit one of the most horrific acts in American history? And, uh, and, you know, it's a question about psychologically what motivated him, but also, and this is why I'm really excited to talk to Greg, historically and contextually what was going on in the country that, that motivated and pushed him further and further and further towards that, that infamous act. Yeah. And before these bonus episodes air, um, I, I thought it would be kind of good to, to bring up some of uh, John Wilkes Booth's own writings. He penned a famous letter, the, the To Whom It May Concern letter. Um, it's... It's kind of both a window into Southern sympathizers' feelings at the time, but f- from a modern viewpoint, it, it's just pretty strange. It's hard to find an entry into, into this sort of thinking. So I thought I'd, I'd read a little bit of it here, and uh, hopefully it's not too long, but it's, it's a fascinating as, as a kind of instrument of, of weird morality, and then, then I'd like to get you two uh, to, to talk to me about it. Here we go. This country was formed for the white, not for the black man. 
and looking upon African slavery from the same standpoint held by those noble framers of our Constitution, I, for one, have ever considered it one of the greatest blessings, both for themselves and us, that God have ever bestowed upon a favored nation. Witness heretofore our wealth and power. Witness their elevation and happiness and enlightenment above their race elsewhere. I have lived in it most of my life, and have seen less harsh treatment from master to man than I have beheld in the North from father to son. Yet heaven knows no one would be willing to do more for the Negro race than I. Could I but see a way to still better their condition? But Lincoln's policy is only preparing the way for their total annihilation. The South are not, nor have they been, fighting for the continuance of slavery. The first battle of Bull Run did away with that idea. Their causes since for the war have been as noble and greater far than those that urged our fathers on. Even should we allow that they were wrong in the beginning of this contest— Cruelty and injustice have made the wrong become the right, and they stand now before the wonder and admiration of the world as a noble band of patriotic heroes. I'll stop there. Um, there's a lot to unpack here, and, and like I said, there's a moral complexity here. What does made the wrong become right mean? Well, I've got about 20 different thoughts. Um <clears throat> my goodness. Uh, going back to the American Revolution, which I think in some ways you kind of do if you're going to unpack uh, what Booth is getting at, given that he is trying to lean on the authority of the founding fathers, which to me, small side note, I don't care if we're talking historical or if we're talking upcom- upcoming presidential election next year. Whenever someone starts sounding off about what the founding fathers thought, it it's a red flag for me. There, there might be something that they're going to say that's going to be legit, but these men disagreed on like everything. So the idea that you're going to say some one thing, unless it is that King George III sucked or that George Washington was awesome, and even then, that could be problematic, you know, it, you're probably going to be wrong. But that side note made. Um, Booth is saying something that um, we hear other people in the era say as well. Uh, Stephen Douglas, during the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he makes the exact same claim about the, the country being created by the white man for the white man. Uh, which, of course, is juxtaposed to Abraham Lincoln having a, a different take on what it was created for, and in fact, citing the idea that all men are created equal to counter it. So as we go all the way back to the, the revolution, you know, we really do see both of these ideas painfully coexisting in their you know, non-ability to coexist. Even before the revolution happens, Otis, a famous pamphleteer in Boston back uh, when we're, we're talking about the, the Stamp Act, Sugar Act, so uh, 1764, 1765, when he's writing a tract decrying taxation, he works into the pamphlet, by the way, obviously I'm you know paraphrasing, but he pretty much says, by the way, black Americans have all the same rights as white Americans. So we've got that in the dialogue, you know, a decade before Lexington and Concord is going to go down. Thomas Jefferson, his first draft of the uh, Declaration of Independence it had a huge, and of course, this is kind of some fun irony that we probably don't have the time to get into today, but it, it shows the complexity. He, as a slave owner, has a long, se- several paragraphs or so where he goes on about how awful slavery is, and he blames the British for it. It's, it's also kind of a way to sort of deflect America having slavery. It's it's those British that brought this institution, and now we've been stuck with it, but we need to overcome it. So th- there we are in the in um, the birthing pains of our nation with even a slaveholding founding father being able to say, this is bad and we need to stop it. So obviously this does not jive with this idea that it's a country created by whites for whites. 
Here you've got founding fathers who are saying, we got to overcome this. And of course, at the same time, though, we have other perspectives that are coming out. When we get to the Constitutional Convention, the delegates from Georgia and South Carolina, they don't beat around the bush. I mean, they're very clear. If slavery is touched in the Constitution, they're walking. So this whole thing's going to collapse. And that's where we get some very uneasy you know, comments from founding fathers who are very opposed to slavery. Alexander Hamilton is very upset with with this outcome and, you know, sees this as the only way to, to kind of keep things together. James Madison makes some similar comments, again, uh, a Southern slaveholder, um, but he essentially says slavery is awful. Seeing the Union fall apart at Philadelphia would be worse, though. So it's a deal with the devil in, in his mind. So you can see this conflict all the way back to the beginning, which means anyone, by the time you get to the 1860s, and I think you still see this in the 21st century, anyone who has a specific narrative they want, rather than getting into the nuance and complexities and recognizing that it's a mixed bag, they'd latch on to the, to the one narrative that they want while conveniently ignoring everything that is uh, against it. Yeah, and it seems it, it seems to me that the you know the contradiction of the Constitution is sort of commingled with this idea of slavery, and that you know that contradiction being you know between the the powers of the federal government and the rights of the states. And it seems like you know I think you're hard pressed, Greg. I think you're exactly right. It seems in my in my reading of history, you'd be very hard pressed to find a moment in you know the early American Republic where slavery, in some way, shape, or form, was not central to the political discourse that was happening across the nation. I mean, like you said, you mentioned the Constitutional Convention, and it seems like slavery in the name of compromise was sort of, they kept kicking the can down the road, but it always popped up. I mean, in 1790, you've got Benjamin Franklin and the Quakers uh, bringing petitions before Congress to, I believe, that called for abolition and the end of the slave trade. And of course, those things died in committee and, um, you know, the rights of the states, the constitutional rights of the states were the sort of like banner under which they made the decision to shelve those things and to kill those things. And then, you know, uh, I, you know, right now I'm, I'm doing some some research on the, you know, the 1830s, where, of course, once again, slavery rises to the surface. And, you know, in the aftermath of the War of 1812, you know, uh, giving rise to Henry Clay's American system, that sort of gets into the same sort of question of like the rights of the federal government and the rights of the states. And I think there's this John Randolph quote, who was a, a congressman from Virginia. And I think Randolph is the one who said, look, if the federal government can intercede and impose its will, even in the name of economic development over the states, then they can emancipate every slave in the South. And so these questions of the role of the federal government and how they relate to the rights of the states is always set. Slavery is always right there at the heart of that sort of original contradiction in our political system, it seems. It's true. And it's an unfortunate sidelining of one of the essential thoughts in my mind uh, from that early generation in our continual uh, simplification of the past where we do start making these large arching claims of the founding fathers believed A, B, C, and whatnot, we forget or conveniently ignore the fact that even the, the Constitution, <laughs> that was not a slam dunk. There were attendees, delegates at Philadelphia who left in frustration. Rhode Island boycotted the whole thing, didn't even send delegates. There were uh, a handful of men who, on the fateful day of September 17th, chose not to sign it. And then the ratification process was was wrought with difficulty. The famed patriot Patrick Henry 
he railed against the Constitution and in a way was about states' rights, but it's not in the way that slavery is about states' rights. The American Revolution is is fought, to simplify things, I, I suppose, to make this <laughs> a one-sentence comment, against the perception that the, the crown is a tyrant. And there was a fear among those who opposed the, the Constitution that they were just going to recreate the same tyranny. So it was important to them that as they saw it, the 13 colonies, they turned into 13 sovereign states. There's a reason we use that word, state, as opposed to provinces. So the, the Constitution was kind of this moment where uh, a number of founders sat down and went, okay, maybe we've overstepped. Maybe it was a little crazy to think we should all be entirely independent. We, we do need a central government of some sort. Uh, but then you had those other other founders who were going, no, 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 we, we nailed this. We should be independent uh, little countries. Um, so that that dialogue kind of gets usurped as the decades go on. Slavery continues to boil. It doesn't die out the way the founders thought it would. Ending the international slave trade in 1808 doesn't uh, kill this awful uh, institution as they had expected. And uh, then those who, who are interested in, in slavery, they do start to latch onto it. But at the same time, you see them oppose states' rights when it's, when it's not in the interest of slavery, as happens with the, the uh, Fugitive Slave Law in 1850. Yeah, and I feel like it's, you know, John Wilkes Booth is born in the 1830s. And so he is, you know, he's, he's, he comes into the world at a time where these compromises, like, you know, the compromise over the... Uh, Constitution and the Missouri Compromise and all of these different sort of temporary band-aids that have been put on this problem are are sort of you know being stretched to their limits and the 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 divisiveness and the divisions between the regions on this question of slavery are really kind of boiling to the surface and I think that that Booth comes into the world at a really interesting time for the question of slavery absolutely to to be born kind of right in between the revolution and the civil war you you've already got this established history of of these as you put it you know i mean these failed compromises there it, it's just band-aid after band-aid and it's not really healing the wound that's that's been there from the start even even george washington um he only ran for a second term was because alexander hamilton and thomas jefferson in a rare moment of actually agreeing on something both told him, if you do not run, if you are not president again, we're going to fall apart and we're going to fall apart on a north-south divide. So even back then, you, you know, you could see it. Then we get to the Missouri Compromise and, of course, the Compromise of 1850, Kansas, Nebraska, all these all these efforts to kind of duct tape and super glue a, a car together. And that doesn't work. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting, too, to look at Booth, just, you know, the psychology of, of who he was and what drove him to do these things. And what, you know, in my, my putting of it, just what made him the man that he was, what made him the monster that he was. And I think that, you know, he is born, I mean, he's an interesting, you know, case study because he's born into a family that is abolitionist right? Which wasn't necessarily commonplace for that time. He's born into a family that's prominent in the North. His father's arguably the most famous actor in the country, his other brother, Edwin, who is also this incredibly famous actor. And, uh, and John struggles. He struggles. He doesn't have the talent that his brother has. He doesn't have the talent that his father has. And I think even in the early days was forbidden to use the Booth name when he went up on stage. Um, but in spite of all that, he, you know, he keeps trudging ahead and he builds a career. And I think actually in that to whom it may concern note, one of the things he says is that he's making $20,000 a year, 
which in that time was a, a tremendous amount of money. Oh, yeah, it's huge. So he overcomes those obstacles and sort of rises to fame and stardom. And that's the other shocking thing is that we have to remember that John Wilkes Booth is, is a celebrity in his time, right? I mean, he comes from this famous family. He rises to fame, wealth, and stardom. And he reflects back in that very same letter about John Brown. He reflects back on this man who was hung for what he believed in. And in, in this curious, weird way, he connects someone who is his ideological opponent, who is willing to die and sacrifice for what they believed in, to this decision that he's making to become an active participant uh, in the fight to preserve the institution of slavery. And it's just really, it's really bizarre. Well, yeah, let's go back and detail ex- the execution of John Brown. Who was he? What did he do? And how did he die? Sure. So uh, John Brown is an abolitionist. And, you know, it's important to remember that abolitionist, while today we look back and say, abolitionist, awesome. That's someone that I'd be on board with. Uh, abolitionists were, um, were considered radicals. And you had a number of Northerners who would even say, I'm opposed to slavery, but I'm, I'm not an abolitionist. You know, that, that was an important caveat. John owned it proudly. Uh, he was involved in Kansas when we had bloody Kansas. He's the, the man who took a broadsword with his sons and, uh, you know, hacked up some pro-slavery um, people out there. And then he's convinced that slavery needs to come to an end and it can only do so through violent means and he is going to facilitate this you know getting this ball rolling and he's going to do it by taking over the u.s arsenal that's at harper's ferry in what was then virginia today it's west virginia and then he's going to basically hide in the mountains and slaves will come to him he's he's in picture you know he's he's pictured this very grandiose uh thing where all these uh slaves will run away join his army and essentially, they're, they're going to take war to the South. So it wouldn't be a civil war in this North versus South sort of way, but a civil war of African-Americans fighting for their, for their liberty. And so he uh, famously leads this raid on Harper's Ferry. It starts out okay for the first few hours, but it quickly goes downhill. Uh, those who do live are arrested, and he is very quickly tried, sentenced to death. But his death, it's, it's the sort of thing you make a movie about. I mean, he goes with such dignity to the scaffold and he's executed by the military because there's such a fear in Virginia that, you know, vigilantes are going to try and exact justice before the state can do it. So he's kept on lockdown and present amongst the military that is putting him to death are uh, some Virginia Greys. And um, among those ranks... We have Booth. So here the great actor has front row seats, if you will, to, you know, I mean, and I think this is important. Let's remember that. This guy's an actor. He's theatrical. He thinks in these sorts of terms. I like to keep that in mind even when I read his letters and think about uh, him expressing himself. This is a guy who's given to hyperbole, uh, to being dramatic. So he, he watches as John Brown ascends to the scaffold and I mean, this is just about the most badass thing I think anyone can do. They're, um, <laughs> they ask him if he'd like warning, you know, before they're going to actually pull the lever and, and he's going to die. And he just says, no, don't leave me waiting forever, but I'm fine. And then he stands there for 10 minutes because the troops have to get into the right formation. So they're all kind of moving around. And he just stands there stoically ready for his death. And all of this is being observed by Booth. Yeah. And, you know, he was, Greg, it's, I mean, in my 
memory of it, I think he was doing a play in Richmond at the time that was actually, ironically, was produced by Mr. Ford of Ford's Theater, the site of, uh, you know, his infamous assassination. Yeah. You, you can just play seven steps to Kevin Bacon with Booth and, and all this, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> you, you absolutely can. Yeah. And he left, I mean, he left, he missed a performance to go join those greys and he got on the train with them. And like, you know, I, I think that they even gave him a uniform. And I think it was probably because he was famous that they allowed him to do it. Um, but I mean, it's it's kind of remarkable to think that, you know, here's this guy who's devoted his entire life to being an actor who in this moment basically risks throwing his career away or at the very least damaging his reputation with Mr. Ford, who is a you know, very powerful sure. theater producer uh, to go and be a part of this thing um, and, and take, you know, take a, a very, very dark and horrific role in a, a dark moment in American history. So we have this rash, impulsive, dramatically inclined person who witnesses a uh, a noble and theatric death of probably a rash, impulsive, dramatic person uh, on the opposite side and is is moved by this commitment to uh, his cause, even though it's it's one that Booth doesn't be- believe in so much that he this this incident ends up in in what amounts to pretty much Booth's manifesto. Yeah, this that may be then the inciting moment that radicalizes Booth. But he is a, a rich, well-to-do famous northern man with no skin in the game in terms of any um, economic system or slavery in the south but he is incensed uh, absolutely convinced that that uh, Abraham Lincoln is the instrument of tyranny and this just doesn't feel right to any modern ears that might you know what, what is the terror of tyranny in you know the 1850s and 60s in in America you know, as, as you're pointing out, Lindsay, even with this comment, giving Booth's background, he doesn't line up, right? He doesn't make sense as a as a, a Southern sympathizer on paper. Uh, honestly, I I would, in in my opinion, I'm I'm not going to say this is the gospel truth, but I would tie this to his conception of what the United States um, was, or maybe I should say were at that time, in, in this looser concept of the balance between federal and, and state power. Uh, tyranny is is the word for, again, you know, going back to the revolution, it's, it's, it's the word for this larger uh, entity that's kind of overpowering the local mechanisms of republics. I mean, for instance, uh, if we think about John Brown's execution again, when he's executed, he's executed um, for being a, a, a quote-unquote, uh, you know, traitor, or rather an enemy, excuse me, uh, to not just the Union, but an enemy to Virginia. Mm. Now, I just think it's very interesting that Virginia is stated kind of as this equal entity to the United States in 1859. To me, it, it kind of speaks to some of that same tension of you know, locality versus centrality. I think inside the idea of Virginia, though, there's something psychological going on for Booth as well. Because uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, his 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 father dies and his mother for, for she had forbade him from using the family name and so booth is kind of you know he's he's basically being told by his mother and his brother that he's not good enough that he's never going to live up to his father's you know uh, expectations that he's never going to be as good as his father was he has no success early on in his career in the north and so what does he do he goes out on tour 
and he starts touring the South. And that's where he makes his first splash in the industry. He's beloved in the South, particularly in the state of Virginia. And that's sort of where his fame and wealth is built. And I, and I have to believe, I'm, I'm an actor myself. I mean, I started as a, you know, a theater actor and have done some film and TV work as well. So I've spent my life around actors. And, I, and it may seem like an oversimplification to say that, that he loved the South because they loved him. But I definitely think that that's a part of the equation, you know, even inside of this this uh, political worldview that he's developing ab- about this question of the, the role of the federal government and the rights of the states. Oh, I I think that's absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, again, we're we're kind of and this is fun to do and, and it's certainly worth it. But, you know, we, the fact is we're never going to know at the end of the day exactly right what, what was making him tick. But I think that, yeah, that, that has plenty of uh, of credibility to it. Well, talking about uh, fun things that are fun to do, uh, let's speculate some more. But even further, what would have happened if Lincoln had lived? <laughs> Oof, oh, boy. Uh, Greg? <laughs> well, yeah, all, all depends on uh, which uh, which side of the throwdown you're on. You know, it's it's fascinating the way that Lincoln uh, gets remembered on on both sides. Uh, for instance, both Jefferson Davis and Frederick Douglass regret that Lincoln gets killed. Hmm. I mean, think about that for just a second. Jefferson Davis, Frederick Douglass. Could you have two m- more different men when it comes to everything that the Civil War is about? Both of them are convinced that if Lincoln had lived, then their vision for Reconstruction would have gone better. Jefferson Davis was convinced that Lincoln understood the South. I mean, let's remember, he, th- these two men were born in the same state. They're both sons of Kentucky. And he was convinced that Lincoln, at the end of the day, having overseen this war, he, he understood the plight of the South and it would have made sure that things went smoother, that, that the North wouldn't have come in and roughed him up in you know, the, the Confederate perspective. Meanwhile, Frederick Douglass who definitely had a relationship with, uh, with Lincoln, he's convinced that Lincoln would have come in and uh, secured the reconstruction plan that you know, certainly did not occur. Uh, he, he would have made sure that uh, African-American men would have gotten the vote, that civil rights really would have become a thing. And, and we could go on with example after example of uh, people from uh, Lincoln's cousin Dennis, who's convinced that basically what, what Johnson did is the same thing Lincoln would have done, though Lincoln would have done it better, you know, whatever that means, to uh, other reporters and, and other Republicans who were convinced that Lincoln would have, would have pushed the, uh, the Reconstruction, the, the more radical Republican Reconstruction agenda uh, with greater fervor. You know, this, this makes me think about Edwin Stanton, this conversation. Um, so, I, Greg, I mean, if I say anything that's completely, you know, uh, out of bounds, let, let me know. I, I'm, I'm sort of at this point, it's impossible. Like, his, the history and facts and the story that we told are so commingled that, like, sure, uh, so sure. I'll, I'll talk about it from the perspective of, of the character that we painted of, of Edwin Stanton. Um, you know, in our, in our reading of him, you know, he obviously was somebody that really advocated for a more punitive stance to the South. And, you know, he claims, Stanton claims, that Lincoln, that his malice towards none policy, that his policy of pardon and amnesty, that it was really strategic, that it wasn't about being, you know, uh, benevolent, that it was about bringing about an end to the war by extending like an olive branch of mercy. It was trying to encourage the, the South to surrender. 
But but Stanton would also say that Lincoln fully intended to to prosecute Reconstruction through the vantage point of being punitive, um, of of having a progressive system of readmitting the South into the government, and that it wouldn't have been this sort of malice towards none, all is forgiven approach. That it would have been a little more uh, stern than than it was under under Andrew Johnson. But also, in my reading of Edwin Stanton, I kind of feel like, and I love him as a character, and I love the history of him and his story, but I also kind of know that he... I love what you guys have done with him, by the way. Oh, thank you. But, throw that out there. Thanks, oh, Greg. Yeah. But it's also like, I kind of know that maybe he's not always the most reliable source of uh, truth and veracity. So, <laughs> you know, I, 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 que- I question that. So I guess my question to you is, is there any, is there any historical uh, basis for Stanton's claim that Lincoln would have been more punitive. I mean, he says that Lincoln changed his mind in the final days of his life and told him in a private meeting where no one else was around. I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, it's dubious. Yeah, it's, it's convenient, right? Those private meetings where no one else is exactly. around. Exactly. I mean, is there anything um, to it? Yeah, no, there there is. And again, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but at the very end, um, Lincoln, uh, his very last speech uh, on April 11th, he does call for giving the vote to at least some African-Americans mm. to, you know, the the brave vets who have fought in the war. So that's clearly a, a step in the direction, um, you know, that, that, that we're talking about as opposed to what, you know, Jefferson Davis or uh, Lincoln's cousin Dennis uh, were both thinking. And uh, William Stoddard, he said that Lincoln told him to push, um, you know, to, to really make an effort to uh, get the vote for African-Americans. So... You know, you, you do have these these little, uh, I don't know, glimmers of, of evidence. And this is something, uh, another thing that I think is really important to remember. Whenever we're, we're talking about a historical figure, you don't even have to get into the counterfactual stuff. We have a tendency to want to say, you know, this person was A, this person was B, right. and we don't want to complicate them more. People evolve and change. So while someone like... Uh, Dennis looks back at Lincoln's comments in the Lincoln-Douglas debates where he's he knows that being a strong, ardent abolitionist is going to hurt his chances for election. And in fact, Stephen Douglas is actively trying to depict him as an abolitionist to that end in order to defeat him. You know, Lincoln is talking a, a more mild, uh, you know, a more chill, anti-slavery, but well, you know, we're, we're not, we're not going to, end slavery in the South. We're just going to contain it. You know, that's his narrative. Right. So once again, Southerners who who want to look for a, a kind Abraham Lincoln, they can point to these earlier words, whereas it sounds like he was kind of ramping up at the end. And then yet another complicating question is, when was Lincoln really saying what Lincoln thought? Right. So was he putting on an act in earlier years in order to get elected, even though he had more radical views? Or, you know, toward the end, was was he ramping up and I'm not trying to say that honest Abe wasn't honest, but these are games that if we're, if we are going to be honest, we have to acknowledge that politicians do have to play from time to time. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, uh, that's, that's 100% how I feel about it. I mean, I think that Lincoln clearly did change. He clearly did evolve, or at the very least, if his true feelings and his heart of hearts remain the same, certainly what he was willing to say and talk about change. Yes. And it's also to tie this back to Booth. It's, it's interesting that as Lincoln uh, pushes the, the, the needle, 
further and further and further, it drives Booth further and further and further towards radicalization. And that speech you mentioned uh, where he called for citizenship uh, and for the vote, I be- is, is that right, Greg? That was the last speech that Lincoln made, right? As, yeah, I believe it was. Yes. And, 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 and Booth famously said right after that speech, he was in the audience listening to that speech. And he said, by God, that's the last speech that man will ever make. And ironically, there was another person in the audience that day whose name was John Mercer Langston, who's a character in our show as well. Yeah. Um, but I just think it's that's that's also an interesting dynamic. And so one of the things that Eric and I and our sort of you know deep dive into this subject kind of latched onto is like Stanton is pushing Lincoln towards you know first identifying the war as a fight for emancipation and then pushing him towards speaking about citizenship and equality and all these things. So as Stanton is pushing Lincoln, Lincoln is pushing Booth and kind of the the circle of that is like a character dynamic is the thing that we were the most interested in. As often happens in, in any historical discussion, you know, we, we use certain terms of arts. You know, we probably know what emancipation means and we probably know what suffrage means. Describe the, the, the consequences for the South, given emancipation, which we pretty much understand. Slavery, you know, turns into sharecropping. But em- emancipation is not citizenship or, and suffrage. That would have been something altogether different. Yes, yes. And in, in fact, this is... This is an interesting thing if you want to really connect global dots for a moment. At this same uh, time period and going into the next few decades, European powers have massive colonial empires. France, Britain, you, you know, you've probably heard the old adage, the sun never sets on the British Empire, uh, spoken, you know, between, say, World War I uh, up, up to World War II. And we use this term called decolonization to talk about those empires falling apart. Well, one of the things that both of those empires tried to do in an effort to keep their empires together as they're starting to crumble, uh, it was extend limited rights to the, the, to the colonized. So, for instance, in France, which controlled Algeria, a, a country in northern Africa, and they considered Algeria a full integral part of France, but they only, have the, they only gave the vote to white men Arab men did not have uh, the vote, but then they started to extend it to "quote unquote" Franco, um, you know, Gallicized, basically French-styled Arabs. So I, I see a similar. I, I draw a parallel there, where there's some language of sure we could emancipate uh, the enslaved, but that doesn't mean that they get full enfranchisement. It doesn't mean that they're full, uh, you know, first-class citizens. They're they're kind of a a, a second-class citizen. And I mean, I'm actually taking that language almost straight out of French Empire documents, where they uh, they even say in, in a 19th century document that the Algerian uh, is French. He is a citizen, but you know there are some limitations. Well, okay. Well, then what what does citizen even mean? So there, you know, there there's this space uh, to navigate, if you will. Um, and that's exactly what we see happening in Reconstruction, right? We, we get these new constitutional amendments that, I mean, every time I read them, you know, even as I understand the history, I almost have to scratch my head anew and say, how the hell did we need, you know, further legislation? This is so clear as day. And yet we did because the link, you know, it, it was so um, warped and and abused in, in such a way as to you know push into sharecropping and to essentially deny uh rights for yet another century 
Yeah, and I think for John Wilkes Booth, I mean, this, you know, this question of, of the definition of, of citizenship post-emancipation is really the straw that breaks the camel's back. I mean, it's really the, the, the final nail in the coffin. It absolutely pushes him off the edge. When Lincoln calls for citizenship, for suffrage in that speech, uh, it's, it's, it's a bridge too far for Booth. And his plan escalates. You know, of course, his plan started as a, a kidnapping plot. And, um, you know, the goal was to kidnap Lincoln, take him south uh, below the Potomac and, and hopefully uh, arrange a troop exchange so that some of the southern uh, uh, soldiers that were in POW camps, for lack of a better term, would be released. And hopefully the you know, Confederacy who was kind of losing the fight would be able to get back into it. But when he hears Lincoln talk about citizenship, when he hears him talking about full enfranchisement and full citizenship and equality, the plan escalates. It goes from a kidnapping plot to a plot of assassination. Well, this is interesting because it brings up the question of was Stanton right? Mm. Was the Confederacy really involved with the assassination of Lincoln? Or was it a, you know, a, a lone wolf decision on, on Booth's part to, to escalate on his own, own accord? It does seem like the, the, the kidnapping plot may have at least been tacitly approved by the South. So we have some, some conspiracy. How far did this, was the South involved? Well, and I just, I want to start off by saying, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that that's something that we know the answer to. I mean, I think if we take people at their words at face value, then I think the answer is, you know, unequivocally no. But I think it's a little more complicated than that. From my perspective as a writer writing about Edwin Stanton, what was crystal clear to me is that he believed it. <laughs> you know, he, he absolutely believed it. I don't think it was political chicanery on his part. I don't think it was a game that he was playing to achieve political ends, which is often how he was painted in uh, history books, particularly history books uh, following uh, the Reconstruction era where he's kind of painted as this, you know, kind of one-dimensional Machiavellian figure that's, you know, pulling the strings to, you know, achieve the outcome he wants at no matter the cost. Uh, and my reading of it, I, I think that Stanton believed it. Um, do, you, do you think that's right, Greg? I mean, do you think that Stanton believed it or was he playing a game? That, that is the hard piece. I mean, I, I, can, I 100% agree that we can't prove this one way or the other. Um, and, you know, I, I'd even cite, uh, for, for those listeners who... who would like to continue studying up on this more. David Herbert Donald, he has an amazing biography on Lincoln. He agrees as well. He says that we just can't prove it, that um, lower levels of, of the Secret Service knew about the kidnapping plot, but there's just zero proof that it was known on in the higher echelons. And uh, definitely when we get to the ex, uh, to the assassination, that's that we'll never know. But as for Stanton, where was he actually at? I mean, it kind of depends on which day you ask me. <laughs> you know, as you even said uh, just a little bit earlier, Steve, you know, Stanton, who I like very much uh, as, as a historical figure, uh, he, he's, a, he's a fun character to get to know. This is a guy that, you know, he, he knew how to maneuver. He knew how to say uh, what needed to be said at times, right? You know, it, it, he wasn't, um, well, you know, there's a reason he didn't get the the nickname Honest Stanton. Uh, I'm not trying to call him a liar per se, but you get what I mean. I do. So, so it leaves a huge question mark for me. Um, and I don't think I can really definitively say one way or the other if he really bought it or if this was about you know prosecuting the South in the way that 
Johnson wouldn't do it. Yeah, and that's why I always sort of, to pull this to modern day, that's why I always bring up Dick Cheney when I talk about Stanton, because I think it's an interesting, it's not a, obviously it's not a one for one, but it's an interesting analog because, you know, here's this, this horrific uh, incident, this horrific attack on, you know, the core of the American government. And here's this man who really doesn't actually have the authority to do what he does, but steps in because there's a void to be filled and fills it and uh, makes decisions really early on about who's responsible and commits to those decisions. Of course, Dick Cheney and Edwin Stanton are not exactly politically aligned. They probably would disagree on almost everything, but they they adopt very similar tactics in the pursuit of what they believe is justice. I've always found it fascinating to see how um, <laughs> we tend to, I don't know, but both sides of, of the political spectrum, whether you're talking historically or the present, seem to have... Uh, this perception that, you know, quote unquote, their team has a certain way of going about things. But at the end of the day, there's a way that politicians kind of be, because that's just the mechanisms of the game. There's, there are ways that politicians sort of have to maneuver if they're, if they're going to, if you will, for lack of a better word, win. So, you know, yeah, you're going to see um, Stanton, Cheney, uh, they're in different eras, uh, but, you know, to, to whatever degree they do or don't uh, align, I think that's even a, we might even call it an irrelevant issue that the fact of the matter is both of these were men that saw their nation in in a vulnerable position and both of them were convinced that they could step up and uh, alleviate those those problems that they could make things better and so they just stepped right on in and, and did what they thought was right whether we agree or, or disagree with uh, with either I'm always intrigued by modern parallels they're fraught you know, drawing connections between 1850 and 1950 or and any sort of connection like this. But I think, if we're honest, the, this is what the pursuit of history really is, is there for. It's to inform us here in the present age. It's uh, certainly not just swashbuckling stories of heroes. And all three of us are engaged in this activity of bringing the past to the present, but in a consumable story-driven uh, manner. Yeah. So I, I want to bring the, this conversation back to just uh, just the importance of history. And, you know, podcasting is not particularly easy, and certainly historical podcasting is even more not easy. <laughs> Why did you start your podcast, Greg? <laughs> the the million-dollar question. Or the $16 question. <laughs> That's the case, maybe. <laughs> um, honestly, you, you really hit it on the head. Uh, to me, history is absolutely crucial. It's It's something that everyone needs to understand, frankly, to fulfill their, what I see as an ob- obligations, your, your, your duties as a, a citizen. Um, you, you do need a basic understanding of where the country's been and, uh, you know, what, what scar tissue we bring with us, what victories, what losses. And I, I feel like we, we live in a time where, um, you know, I'm, I'm very intentionally apolitical on, uh, history that doesn't suck. I have, I have no interest, in, and I feel the same way in the classroom. I have no interest in telling my whether it's my podcast audience or it's my students, in my classroom, what to think. My job is to convey nuanced, complex, accurate information, and then the listener can use their critical thinking skills to decide what what that means about what they should think. But we we live in a time where information is readily available. You can get anything you you want to know. We all have supercomputers in our pockets, and yet we've perhaps never more doubted uh, the sources that we're turning to. So uh, 
to me, I, I kind of got this sense of I can humbly uh, try to step in into this uh, this arena, I guess, that is the public sphere. And, you know, I, I've kind of come to, to know myself. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. And thankfully, I have a, a great team that helps to shore up some of my weaknesses. But I know I am, you know, sarcastic and... Um, I guess, entertaining enough uh, in the classroom. I've, I've come to learn that over the years that uh, I, I felt it would be appropriate, given my background, to try doing a, a story-based, um, basically, survey of the United States to, to help people better, better know. Because I, I do feel, you know, I, I will mildly and respectfully, I'll take my profession to task a little bit. I don't think that we always think about uh, whether or not we're really uh, putting a history out there that that's going to, well, we we can get esoteric. I think that's the best way to put it. Hmm. We can get into our ivory towers and kind of talk to each other and forget to talk to everyone else, uh, and, and expect people to understand what we're talking about when we get esoteric. And so naturally, I completely understand where the average person says, "I'm not going to go buy an 800-page book on wheat cultivation in Nebraska between 1848 and the spring of 1853." Um, you know, you're looking for something that's that's quicker paced. Um, and again, I'm sure someone out, some historian out there is going to be uh, offended. I by no means mean any offense. And this isn't everyone in the profession, but we need more historians that are willing to do these sorts of things in my in, in my take. So, so I went ahead and, and put it out there. I think it's important to go to mediums that people use. Podcasting is is taking off. It's a way that people can get a free education, you know, if, if they know that they have a legitimate source. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I wanted to do all, all of that, and here we are. And Steve, you come at on pretty much the same conclusion, but from, from a different angle. I mean, you, uh, you are an actor, a playwright, a screenwriter, uh, live in Los Angeles, and yet you've decided that history is kind of your ballywick as well. Yeah, and I, you know, my, my sort of, uh, I don't know, my core value, uh, I think I've said this before in some of the Inside the Episodes, is my core value is, is that, you know, what's going to, what's going to save our democracy, what's going to make the world a better place to live in. This is a lofty thing to say, but is radical empathy and radical empathy, especially for those with whom you disagree. And I think that the reason that I, inside of that, the reason that I turn to history is, you know, not just because I believe that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Although I think that's true, but I think in our discourse today, it's like, Although the labels change, the terminology changes, you know, all those sort of superficial elements change, the the ideas behind them are the same and have been the same from the beginning. And I think sort of like through the prism of like empathy, I, I my my hope is is that even in a story like 1865 that's divisive and that gets into some really hot topics politically today, my hope is is that we can, you know, better understand each other or at least understand the historical context of the ideas that we're advocating for and the ideas that are being, you know, uh, pushed in our direction by others. I just hope that it elevates the discourse a little bit. I mean, even if it's in like, you know, tiny microscopic ways, um, you know, I grew up in the South. I grew up in Texas, uh, you know, in a a very conservative family, uh, similar to uh, my partner, Eric Archilla. And, you know, we talk about this all the time. You know, we're very different, by the way, Eric and I, politically. Um, you know, we, we look at things from a completely different perspective, and we've arrived at some very different conclusions. And that's meant that, you know, through the course of even the research that we've done, that sometimes we're seeing things in different ways, you know. And, and, and inside of this moment where it's like, what is, you know, we're questioning now, what is fact, what is truth, what, what is history, 
I don't have any clear answers, but I know I can look at this creative process that I experienced with Eric, somebody who I don't always agree with about every single issue. And I know that we've have mutual respect for one another. We understand each other. And I have to say that that wasn't always the case for me before. I mean, of course, I always respected Eric. He's a great guy, but I didn't always understand some of the things that he was saying. And through this examination of this very complicated historical subject, we were able to find common ground. And I think that's why I gravitate towards it, because I feel like if we can understand each other, if we can empathize with one another, then we can understand that we're allies and not enemies. And once we understand that, then we can, you know, we can bridge gaps of lack of understanding and of, you know, on these complicated questions where the answers are never simple. Steve, can I just say amen and amen to all of that? I mean... You answered the question way better than I did, <laughs> but, and, and it's, but you know, it, it's the, that is, I think as soon as you start talking going, and that was the other point I meant to make. Um, I mean, it's about empathy. I, you know, you, you, you describe these different, uh, poles and forces in your life. I, I think, I mean, I'm really happy about this. I've ha- happened to have lived in very conservative areas, very liberal areas, um, to to have people in my life who are very conservative, very liberal. And I'm really glad for that because it has, I, I've been able to see the, the different ways that both of these groups view themselves and view each other. And uh, I'm, I'm constantly left with, with the sense of, of the need for, for greater empathy and history. You know, it doesn't mean that you're going to up and agree with, with someone necessarily. Sometimes, you know, your views do shift and, and get more nuanced and that's great. But yeah, uh, taking the time to actually understand the origin of, of different thought processes and uh, where where the where other people are coming from, it you know it, it can elevate the discourse so that we can actually <laughs> talk about the you know the issues, I guess, as the expression goes. And what I love about your podcast, what I love about history that doesn't suck, is that it really doesn't suck, and you're <laughs> you're doing such an amazing <laughs> job of elevating that, right? Of like showing people how exciting and engaging and And frankly, character driven, it really is. And Lindsay, you as well on on American History Tellers and Scandal. I mean, it. I think these these shows are really important because they're engaging. And I think that that's the the myth about history that it's boring is 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 just not true. I mean, just like you know, pick any year and Google that year and just find out what happened in that year. And if you go down that rabbit hole, you will be fascinated by the amount of crazy things that have happened and also the amount of triumphant, joyous things that have bent our country towards social justice. I mean, those things are equally true. We are as screwed up as we are amazing, you know? Um, and and I think that's a really yeah. fascinating thing. And I think it's it's important for us to be able to to own both of those things at the same time rather than uh, either denigrate ourselves or pat ourselves on the back to just be able to recognize that tension yeah. has constantly been there. And it's it's my hope that we're ever moving that needle, uh, you know, more towards the the things that are worth patting ourselves on the back for and leaving behind the um, our, our, our sins and truly making them something of the past. That That is crucial to me that we can, we can hold on to both you know, we can look at both sides of the coin here uh, rather than just focusing in on on the one narrative. Yeah. Um, so so that's that's the mission statement of of our podcasts, uh, radical empathy or that history is human. Um, but of course, there's the the actual mechanics of podcasts. And I made a joke uh, <laughs> that, that podcasting is a sixteen dollar endeavor. <laughs> 
<laughs> but unfortunately, uh, for for many of us, that's that's actually true. Um, and both 1865 and History That Doesn't Suck have decided recently that uh, we need more of our listeners to participate in our ability to keep telling these stories. We both have Patreon accounts. We both need Patreon accounts um, because at the moment, the 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 sponsorship-driven revenue model that po- most podcasts try to follow is very difficult to make sustainable at our at our scale. What is your plan, Greg? You have a drive to start to get more patrons. Um, here's your opportunity to pitch. Absolutely. So, you know, we are actually coming up on the two-year anniversary of History That Doesn't Suck e- existing, and uh, we certainly do... Uh, we do need the the support uh, financially, but we also need it as as a community. And we've come to really appreciate that our, our patrons they are their friends, you know. And this is a place for, for us to uh, even banter ideas and uh, think about whether it's what extras we should be giving, or even to talk about um, different angles and you know stories that we're considering uh, uh, down the road. So as we come up on our our two year anniversary, we'd love to have. Two percent or so of of our listeners uh, join our community, which would put us at about two hundred patrons. If you know we got our math correct, so two years, two percent, two hundred. That that's kind of what we're shooting for here uh, in in the next few weeks. We we'd love uh, whether they whether you're a new listener, you're a longtime listener, uh, even a, a former patron. You know, and, and even if it's just a dollar a month, this all, you know, it makes a difference. Please uh, come come join our Patreon community at patreon.com forward slash history that doesn't suck. And, you know, help us continue to tell these stories. And, uh, you know, we're, we're upping our game a bit. Josh, who who does our sound, he's uh, he's been purchasing all sorts of new sound effects. And, you know, we're, we're we're kind of as we get new software and, and new hardware. It's uh, it, it's as you both know, right? It the cost can add up quick. So we we'd love uh, the the support from this growing community. And I just wanted to piggyback on that. I I in the amount of time that Greg was talking, and actually much much less, I I I became a Patreon member of History That Doesn't Suck. It literally you go to go to Patreon, Google History That Doesn't Suck. It comes up, and it the whole process will take you about. Two seconds. Well, there you go. Oh, now we need well, one ninety nine. Yeah, you only need one ninety nine now. That's right. <laughs> well, and thank you, Steve. We appreciate the love. Yeah. Hey, I'm I'm glad to give it to you. I think your show is incredible and really important too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I I just want to pat you guys on the back as well. I mean, I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed listening to your work. Um, <laughs> I hope my earlier comments doesn't overly upset some of my colleagues. Uh, you know, it was it was meant ha- in, in good fun and part as well, but. You know that telling stories is what is what really matters to people who who aren't academics, and and we can learn so much through stories. We we are a story based society, uh, you know, species, and I just I have such admiration for the work that that you're doing. I am riveted. I know how the story ends, and yet I hang on every word, whether it's coming out of Lindsay's mouth or and, and it's Steve's prose or whatever the case may be. It's just excellent. Well, thank you. Yes. 1865 is also trying to get more patrons. Uh, but the interesting thing about 1865, if, if I'm going to put on my uh, podcast business hat, is that it's a it's a limited series. Um, and this presents some challenges. Uh, it's really hard to do because it's a full cast, uh, lots in the complete sound design, wall to wall music, the whole bit. It is a, you know, fundamentally a Hollywood production. 
um, but it only lasts 16 episodes. And as it's a historical fiction, you know, really, that's that's the end of the story. We, I mean, we could perhaps go on for a bit or or tell the next chapter, but they would be different characters. Um, this presents a, a business problem because an ongoing podcast has the opportunity to to gather patrons who will from month to month and hopefully year to year, continue to support this this artwork. 1865 is not in that position. And I'm not, honestly, I'd like the conversation to to happen. I'm not sure that Patreon is, is the place for it. There is an opportunity for those of you who, who want to support 1865 to make a one-time donation of any amount, but the infrastructure isn't there to get all the bonus stuff, you know, like the the soundtrack album and, and all the, the behind-the-scenes early episodes uh, stuff that we, that we have planned for the patrons. Anyways, I think the model is still evolving. We definitely need your support to do the next chapter of whatever storytelling experience we're, we're going to embark on. So I would just like to make a heartfelt plea. Please join us and talk to us. I think Greg is completely correct in that uh, this is not just a revenue question. This is a community question. And uh, I, I'd love to hear more from our fans, who, especially the ones who are, who are committed enough to be part of it. Yeah, Lindsay, that's exactly right. I think the number one reason to join 1865 on uh, Patreon is is to be a part of defining and deciding what the next chapter of the story is going to be. I mean, really, the possibilities for us are endless. I mean, maybe maybe we'll tell for a second season, we'll tell a story of, of Edwin Stanton's actions during the Civil War. Or maybe we'll tell a story about an early trial that he was a part of as a trial lawyer. Or maybe we'll jump 100 years in the future and tell a story about 1965 or 2065. Or maybe we jump back to the American Revolution. And so, you know, um, what we really want our uh, Patreons to do and, and our supporters to do is to is to engage with us in a conversation about what those stories are going to be and to get some cool content, uh, bonus stuff along the way. And speaking of cool content, I want to thank Professor Greg Jackson for speaking with us today. He's the host of the engrossing, entertaining podcast, History That Doesn't Suck, a bi-weekly show surveying American history from the very beginning. They're currently just on the Civil War era, so would make a great companion to 1865. Open up your favorite podcast app and search for History That Doesn't Suck, listen, and subscribe. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. And of course, thanks also to Steve Walters, co-creator and lead writer on 1865. Absolutely. And thanks to all of you who are listening. 1865 and shows like it survive nearly solely with your support. The very easiest thing you can do is subscribe so you don't miss an episode. The next best thing you can do is recommend us to someone else. Share your enthusiasm for the show with friends and coworkers in real life or on social media where you can find us at 1865 Podcast. And if you want to go even further, go to 1865podcast.com to become a patron of the show with a $5 monthly pledge or to make a one-time donation of any amount. Your support matters and will go a long way in allowing us to continue this storytelling journey. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Lindsey Graham, and this has been a special bonus episode of 1865. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. 
So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.